Mark chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked, asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to them. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. They had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away to the palace that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling to their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And then and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. Well, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of the Jews, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabathsani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. 
the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching him from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was a preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock. Then he rolled against a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Thanks, Faye. So I'm, I'm sure that none of you sitting here tonight will be even remotely surprised to discover that I am a hero. Officially, I even have the certificate at home to prove it. A certificate, actually, I lost it a few years ago. I have to do this from memory. But it's a certificate that says, from the New South Wales Police Service awarded to Gregory James Lee in recognition of community spirited actions on the 31st of October 1994, who, when having observed two men acting suspiciously, pursued them with no thought for his personal safety. As a result of his actions, Mr. Lee received a stab wound in his upper thigh. The courageous actions of Gregory Lee are sincerely appreciated by the New South Wales Police Service. You see, courageous actions. I am a hero. It all happened one afternoon, one Monday afternoon, I was walking home from uh, New South Wales Uni where I was doing MTS at the time, when I heard a woman scream. Now usually when you hear someone scream, you can tell what sort of scream it is, can't you? So some screams are fun screams, you know, the kind of roller coaster scream. You can remember that kind of scream. Other screams aren't fun screams. They're scared screams. And this was a scared scream. And so I turned around and I looked and I saw a woman sitting pulled up in a car at a set of lights. And I saw two men charging off down the road about 50 metres away and one of them was carrying a bag. Now here's the thing. I'd actually been in bed all weekend. I'd had the flu. I felt like death. And so I just stood there and I watched them run down the road. And then the woman looked right at me. And she screamed again. <laughs> and I could tell in her scream there was a challenge. Are you a man or are you a mouse? <laughs> and really, I'm a mouse. But I figured what I could do is run after them for a little while, pretend to pull a hammy, and then pull out with some kind of dignity. And so I set off down the road after these two fellows, who were about 70 metres away by now. And it was like one of those scenes from a cop show. 
They ran down the road with me in hot pursuit. They turned down one alley and then into the next. And I followed them all the while, inching slowly closer. They separated. So I stuck with the one who had the bag. Until the, the moment when I finally caught up with him. And we stood there, both of us, hands on our knees, kind of trying to catch our breath, panting, sizing each other up. And look, I don't know whether it was the adrenaline talking, but I figured I could take him. <laughs> I thought, and so I began to move forward. This was my action star moment. I began to move forward with my fists raised in the air, ready to be the hero. And just at that moment, the odds shifted dramatically in his favor. Because a blue station wagon pulled up and another guy got out of the car. And I thought, fine, I'll take you both. Come on. <laughs> he pulled out a knife. And I just said, the bag's all yours. <laughs> and I began to back away with my hands in the air. I had no idea what was in this bag, but I was not going to get stabbed for some lady's makeup. <laughs> he stabbed me anyway. He came rushing at me with a knife up around his ears and he just yelled at the top of his lungs and he just hacked. Now, thankfully, this is extraordinary, I tripped over my own feet. <laughs> I tripped over the gutter that was behind me in my haste to get out of the way. And so as I fell backwards, instead of the knife going into my chest, it went down into my upper thigh, right about here, there's a big scar there. And the bone went in, went all the way to the bone, struck bone and snapped off, the handle snapped off in his hand. He grabbed the bag. I know it's pretty good, isn't it? He grabbed the bag and they jumped in the car and they sped off. And here's the thing. I hadn't felt a thing. And so I got up and chased the car. It was like something out of a Terminator movie. And I managed to get the number plate and then I wandered into a shop. It was a smash repairs. And I said, if you don't call the ambulance soon, I'm going to bleed out on your driveway. <laughs> it turns out there was $65,000 in that bag. It was all of the weekend takings from a local Freedom Furniture store and they were dumb enough to send the same person to the same bank at the same time in the same car every day. And it was actually, it's kind of, I mean, thinking back now, it was a pretty exciting moment. But in all honesty, and don't tell the police service this because I actually got a, a pretty big reward for it as well. <laughs> I really don't think I was very courageous. I actually only chased the guy because the woman looked at me and screamed. <laughs> and I really, it never occurred to me what I was going to do when I caught them. I was just running after them. And as soon as there was any real danger, I gave up. In fact, I have to tell you, even now, I can still remember how terrified I was. When that guy ran at me, my heart literally froze. And I can still remember that that horrible feeling, that, that feeling in the pit of my stomach of absolute dread. I was afraid to die. I wasn't even remotely like Socrates. I don't know if you know Socrates, but he was the ancient philosopher who was condemned to death for subversion of the youth. And the way he was supposed to die was by drinking hemlock, the poison. And a fellow named Phidon, who was Socrates' young student, he wrote about Socrates last night. And the way it worked out was after chatting idly with his friends for about an hour or so, which Phidon records, Socrates decides that the time has come and he says, well, come along then. Someone bring the potion if it's been ground. And his friends say to him, but the sun hasn't set yet. 
You could wait for hours, to which Socrates replies, yes, but I'll gain nothing by drinking later, except that I'd be a fool for clinging to life. And so Socrates took up the cup and quite cheerfully, without any trembling, without even remotely changing in colour, he put it to his lips and he drank it. As easy as that. And at this point, Phidon couldn't help himself. He bursts into tears along with one or two others, to which Socrates responds, what a scene. You amaze me. That's just why I sent the women away, to keep them from making a scene like this. This is pre the the kind of feminist revolution. He said, I've heard that one ought to make an end in decent silence. Quiet yourselves and endure. And with that, he lay down on the bed. And just before he died, he turned to his servant, Crichton, and he said, we owe a rooster to Asclepius. Do make sure you pay it. And then he died. In the face of death, Socrates was braver than I could ever be. He drank his cup without the slightest hint of fear. And in fact, Socrates makes Jesus look like an absolute coward. You see, before his death, Jesus showed none of Socrates' nonchalance. Come with me to Mark chapter 14, just a couple of chapters, uh, the chapter before we read. And you'll see Jesus as he prepares to drink his cup of death. But what you'll see is that the the sin is nothing like Socrates. This is after the final supper. Jesus has had his final supper with his uh, disciples. And now they're walking in the olive grove called Gethsemane. And have a look in verse 32. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will but what you will. So this is Jesus' last night on earth. He knows that he's going to die the next day, but the scene is nothing like Socrates' death, is it? There's no bravery here. There's no bravado. Now, Jesus is deeply distressed and troubled. He's overcome with horror about what awaits him. That's what that word, deeply distressed, means. It means horror-struck. It means terrified. That is, for Jesus, death is nothing to be glib about. It's a horrifying prospect. It's a prospect that fills him with dread and despondency. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In other words, his fear and his misery are almost killing him. He's so weighed down with it that in verse 35, he just 
falls to his knees. He's on his hands and knees in the garden. And Luke says at this point, sweat was falling like great drops of blood from him. Jesus is in agony at the prospect of death. And for the first time, he begs that God might change his mind. Jesus, who is completely sinless completely obedient, begs that God might change his mind. In verse 35, he cries out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Don't send me to my death, Father. And imagine, you can almost imagine at that point, Jesus' head starts to lift a little bit in hope before it slumps and he says, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. See, Jesus and Socrates could not be more different as they faced their cups, could they? One is so blithe and so cool and calm and relaxed. The other one is horror-struck. The other one is in agony and terror. Why is that? How is it that Socrates can be so offhand and indifferent and Jesus is almost crippled, almost crushed by the prospect of death? Is Socrates just braver than Jesus? Or could it be that their cups contained different poison? Tonight we're going to see what happened to Jesus on the cross. What did he suffer on that God-forsaken cross? We're going to pray in in a little bit. As you've been warned, the NYC talks just slightly longer than the normal talk at church, given that the introduction has gone this long, you can imagine how long the rest of the talk is. I'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, we think of Jesus on His knees in the garden, trembling and horror-struck, terrified of the death that He is about to face. We cannot imagine. And yet we thank you so much for your word that it tells us exactly what happened to Jesus that night and the next day. We pray that we might understand his death, that we might understand what it meant for him, what it meant for you and what it means for us. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of digging into your word. Thank you for the privilege of exploring that one most important night and day in human history. Amen. Most of the time, the Bible's actually pretty offhand when it describes Jesus' death. It says almost nothing about the physical pain that Jesus went through on the cross. So Mark just says, and they crucified him. There's no hint of what it was that so terrified Jesus the night before. Why was Jesus overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? Well, tonight we're going to approach the cross from three different angles. We're going to approach it from the human angle, what humans did to Jesus on the cross. We're going to approach it very briefly from the satanic angle, how Satan was involved. And then finally, we'll approach it from the Father's angle to see what it was Jesus actually suffered. And from the human angle... You'd have to say Jesus was never actually entirely popular during his life. So John sums up Jesus' life by saying he came to that which was his own, his own people, 
but his own did not receive him. I'm sure Jesus was, sometimes he was hailed by the crowds. All four Gospels record that amazing moment when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and the people laid palm branches before him and they cried out, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus had the high points of popularity, but they were only ever temporary. And in fact, with some people, Jesus was never popular. It's safe to say the Jewish leaders, the leaders around that time, despised Jesus almost from the moment they laid eyes on him. There are actually four main groups of leaders uh, in Israel in the first century. There is the Sadducees, and you read about them in the Gospels. They came from the wealthy upper classes. And they were the ones who controlled the priesthood and the temple. The high priest was generally a Sadducee. And then there were the Pharisees. They were more working class. They were the kind of grassroots people. And you wouldn't find them so much in the temple as the local synagogue. They really emphasized obedience to God's law. They emphasized the teaching of the rabbis. And so you can imagine the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get along very well. There were religious differences and class differences. And then there were the political leaders. There were the Romans and also the Herods. The Romans were the occupying force. They'd conquered that whole part of the world. And the Herods were the local kings who were there as the the Romans' puppets. So they're the four main groups. And normally what you would find is that all of them plotted and intrigued against one another. But during Jesus' life, all of them combined and conspired against him. So the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. The chief priests and the elders in Matthew 26. The Pharisees and the Herodians got together in Mark chapter 3. Herod himself in Luke 13. In fact, the whole Sanhedrin in John 11. The entire leadership of Israel, usually really engrossed in their own political intrigues and infighting, they were united in their conspiracy against Jesus. The fact is, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, riding on that donkey, he was a sheep among wolves. And yet, ultimately, it was actually someone Jesus loved who betrayed him. People have been trying to understand Judas and why he betrayed Jesus for 2,000 years. Was it the money that he got from the Sadducees? Was he a Roman spy? Some people have suggested that. Other people have said that Judas was a Jewish nationalist, that he wanted, to, he wanted Jesus to lead the uprising against the Romans and to fight off the Romans. I think when you read the Gospels, it was actually none of these. It was just plain greed. And it was also personal bitterness. So come with me to, you're already in Mark 14. Have a look in Mark 14, verse 1. Now the Passover... And the feast of, the unleavened, of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the Passover feast, they said. Well, the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table uh, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, kind of a fun nickname, that one, a, ma- a woman came along with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, 
said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you won't always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Isn't that just one of the loveliest stories of the Gospels? And also one of the ugliest. This woman pours out perfume onto Jesus, and it's an extravagant act. You can see that what she's really doing here is pouring out her love because she's forgiven, and Jesus calls it a beautiful thing. But some small-minded people nearby complained that this money could have been spent on the poor. And Jesus rebukes them by basically saying, look, if you really wanted to help the poor, you could do it anytime you wanted. And then Judas goes off to betray Jesus in verse 10. Now, why would he do that? How does Judas fit into this beautiful story about the woman? Look how John tells the story. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, He used to help himself to what was put in it. You see, it was Judas who complained about the perfume. And not because he cared at all for the poor. No, it just cost him an opportunity to steal. He lost money in that moment. You can't help but wonder if also there was a sense of bitterness at Jesus' public rebuke. That is, Judas was shown for what he really was. And so he goes out. And he betrays his friend. And I say friend because even though Judas was a thief, his betrayal still hurt Jesus. Look how Jesus sees this betrayal. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And they were saddened and one by one they said to him, Surely not I, it's one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. You see, this is Jesus' last meal with his disciples. These are the friends who've been with Jesus for the last three years. This is the inner circle. And Jesus has just washed their feet. And then he tells them the terrible, horrible truth, that it's not the Pharisees who will bring about his downfall, it's not the Sadducees. No, it's one of his own friends. Worse still, someone who sits here and has the Passover meal with Jesus, the most precious meal of the year. This was kind of like their version of Christmas dinner. It's one who dips bread into the bowl with Jesus. Even today, eating eating with someone is a sign of friendship, isn't it? (laughs) It's an unfortunate slip of the tongue, that one. (laughs) Like I remember the time someone was talking in a sermon and he said that 
Jesus ate and meant to say drank with the disciples and said, Jesus ate and got drunk with the disciples. And all of a sudden, <laughs> heresy claims it was bad, it was awful, it was. Who is the person you invite to Christmas dinner? It's the person you love. It's a sign of affection and trust. And Judas breaks that trust. And you can only imagine Jesus' pain, can't you? But I think Jesus is hinting at his pain in the word he chooses. Because Jesus' words here remind us of Psalm 41. When David cries out to God at his own betrayal. And David says, my enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Whenever one comes to see me, he speaks falsely while his heart gathers slander. And then he goes out and spreads it abroad. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, a vile disease has beset him. And he'll never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who has shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You see who Judas was? I think we often assume that Jesus mustn't have loved Judas because he knew he would betray him. Jesus must have guarded his heart against Judas. But no, Judas was one of the twelve. Judas had lived with Jesus for three years. They'd spent hours walking and eating and talking together. They would have slept side by side. Jesus is one of the people, Judas is one of the people that Jesus is most close to on earth. And so, of course, Jesus felt the pain of his betrayal. Even my close friend, whom I've trusted, has lifted up his heel against me. And yet, Judas is only the beginning. As we move through this night, Jesus is going to be abandoned by all of his friends. In verse 27 of Mark 14, Jesus says, You will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus foretells before it happens how all of his friends will abandon him one by one. And at that moment, Peter is full of bravado and he says, not me, Jesus. Even if I have to die, I will never disown you. But Jesus says, Peter, you're going to be the worst of all. You, my closest friend, will disown me three times. And you see it happen in Luke 22. Turn over to Luke chapter 22, verse 54. Luke 22, 54. Then seizing Jesus, Luke 22, 54. Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance but when they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with them. But he denied it, woman, I don't know him, he said. A little while later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. An hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with them, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you'll disown me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. 
You see, this Peter, who's so full of bravado, even if I have to die, I won't betray you. He's brought undone by a serving girl, a little girl, not a Roman soldier, not one of the chief priests. He's not put on the rack or tortured. All it takes for Peter to denounce Jesus is a little girl and then he denounces him again and again. And all the while in verse 61, Jesus sees it. And he hears it. I do not know him. Judas, Peter, the rest of the disciples one by one abandon him. And now in the dead of the night, Jesus is completely alone. And completely at the mercy of his enemies. Enemies who have been plotting his death and waiting for this moment. And enemies who make Jesus' last 18 hours as miserable as any human being could. Matthew tells us that Jesus was submitted to a sham trial. False witnesses come forward, but they can't agree. They contradict each other. And it's actually kind of pathetic how inept they are. It shows us that if Jesus had really wanted to, he could have fought these charges and perhaps even won. And yet in the end, it's Jesus who convicts himself. When Caiaphas, the high priest, demands to know if Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus answers, yes, it is as you say, which is enough for him. Then the high priest tears his clothes and he cries out that Jesus has spoken blasphemy and the Sanhedrin decrees that Jesus is worthy of death. And they descend upon Jesus, these aged men of Israel, the noble, venerable leaders of Israel, of God's people, descended on Jesus and Matthew tells us they spit in Jesus' face and they strike him with their fists and they call out, prophesy to us, Christ Messiah, who hit you? And Jesus knows who struck every blow. Even though he created the very fists that are hitting him, Jesus says nothing in that moment. He does nothing. That's only his first beating for this night. Next, Jesus is taken before Pontius Pilate. And the Jews are there and they're hurling their charges and hatred against him. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar and he claims to be Christ, a king, an alternative king to Caesar. But Pilate doesn't want anything to do with Jesus because Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. And so when he discovers that Jesus is in fact from Galilee, he thinks this is my chance to get this man out of my jurisdiction and he packs him off to Herod. And of course, Herod is delighted to see Jesus in the flesh. Because Herod's heard a lot about Jesus. Herod hopes that Jesus is going to perform some kind of miracle for him. And now the creator of the universe is reduced to being a performing pet. But before before Herod, Jesus will say nothing. And even though the chief priests are still hurling their accusations against Jesus, and so Herod and his soldiers dress Jesus in a royal robe. And they mock him and they bow down to him and they say, Hail to the king! Hail His Majesty! Hail to the Son of God! It's some kind of crude parody of the crowds only a couple of days before. They don't know how true their words are. But again, the true King says nothing. He does nothing. And so they pack Him off back to Pilate. 
And now by this time, Pilate's getting desperate because he knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. And so he goes back to the Jewish leaders and he says, and by this time, they've gathered a great crowd of people. And he says to the Jewish leaders, you have brought me this man for inciting the people to rebellion and I've examined him in your presence and found no basis for the charge. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him in order to appease you and I'll release him. But with one voice they cry out, away with this man, release Barabbas the murderer to us. And one who takes life is more popular than the one who created life. But Pilate wants to release Jesus. And so he appeals to them again. And at this point they begin to to chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate tries one last time. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found no grounds for the death penalty. But they're relentless. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And the crowd that so recently chanted Hosanna that Jesus is the king now bays for his blood. And Jesus looks out over Jerusalem. Looks out over this crowd. This is the Jerusalem that he wept over. This is the Jerusalem that as he entered it, he longed to gather them as a hen gathers its chicks. These are the multitudes that he's had compassion on. These are the people that he's taught. More than that, these are the people he created. He formed them in their mother's wombs. And now he sees hatred in their eyes. And they bay for his blood. And so the governor's soldiers take Jesus back into the palace and they strip him naked and they flog him. And they put a scarlet robe on him, probably the same one Herod used. And they twist a crown out of thorns and they jam it onto his head and they kneel down before him and they mock him. Hail to the king of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they take the staff and they struck him on the head again and again and again. And the one who could destroy them with just a word says nothing. He does nothing. And so they strip off the robe again and they put his own clothes back on him. And they lead him away to crucify. We're not told much about Jesus' trip to Golgotha, but we can expect that the crowds were there lining the way, jeering because they normally did. And when Jesus reaches the crucifixion site, he finds that he's to be crucified with two criminals. And Matthew and Mark both tell us that both criminals hurled insults at him. He's even being abused by the condemned. But one of them must repent because Luke tells us that he asked Jesus to remember him. Certainly the passers-by ridicule Jesus. The passers-by shake their head and they call out, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it again in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you really are the Son of God. And of course at this point the leaders and the teachers, they can't miss their their chance. They stand at the foot of the cross looking up to Jesus and they sneer. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. 
and the soldiers join in the laughter. They're hardened warriors. They offer him up wine, vinegar, and they say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Come on. And they play dice for his clothes. As God himself hangs on the cross, saying nothing and doing nothing. And again, we'd be tempted to think that all of this just bounced off Jesus, wouldn't we? I mean, he knew it was all coming. He knew what people were like. He knew the doctrine of sin. He knew their ignorance and their stupidity. But how does this bounce off you? How can the cries of the crowd to crucify, crucify, how can that just bounce off you? They would prefer a murderer alive to you. And how could the jeers of the crowd, the taunts to come down off the cross, just bounce off you? These are Jesus' children. These are the people that he created. They're his countrymen, his fellow Jews. We know their words didn't bounce off Jesus because of the language he used. In John 19, 28, Jesus says from the cross, I'm thirsty, as they offer him wine vinegar. And we'd be tempted to think that Jesus was just saying he was thirsty if it wasn't for Psalm 69, where David says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I'm forced to restore what I did not steal. Rescue me from the mire. Don't let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Don't let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Don't hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. You know how I'm, dis I'm scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. There is Jesus in the words of Psalm 69. The floodwaters of his enemies rise up to his neck. He is scorned. He is disgraced. He is shamed. And verse 20, it breaks his heart. He looks for sympathy and there is none. He looks for comforters and there are none. Judas has already betrayed him. Peter and his friends have abandoned him. The soldiers, the leaders, the people all taunt him in his thirst. They give him vinegar. Jesus dies completely alone. Completely friendless. We don't often think of the pain that Jesus suffered on the cross from the human perspective. But Jesus died a battered, bruised, friendless, 
pathetic, lonely outcast. And even with his last breaths, he endured their taunts. And even if Jesus' suffering had just been limited to that, it would have been worse than almost anything we can imagine, right? If it, even if it was just what human beings could dish out, it would have been worse than we can imagine. And yet, to be honest, nothing really out of the ordinary. I mean, the Romans crucified thousands of people in the first century. There are actually stories of Roman generals running out of trees to crucify people on, that they crucified that many. Now, what makes Jesus' crucifixion so unique is actually the supernatural element. That Jesus also suffered under Satan. Satan was Jesus' great enemy from the very beginning of his ministry. So after his baptism, Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert. And during his ministry, Jesus faced Satan's demons. Jesus called the Jewish leaders the children of Satan because they were doing Satan's bidding. But Satan was also there on that fateful day. Come with me to Luke chapter 22, verse 1. I think you're probably still in Luke 20, Luke uh, anyway. Luke 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. You see, Satan wasn't absent on the day Jesus died. He was there among the mockers. He entered into Judas. So that in a sense, Jesus is dying at Satan's hands on the cross. Something we're going to come back and explore in the next two nights. In fact, in Luke 22, Jesus calls the hour of his death the hour when darkness reigns. You see, it wasn't merely men who crucified Jesus. Satan was there too. And yet, ultimately, it wasn't human beings who were responsible for Jesus' death, and neither, neither was it Satan. No, it was actually the Father himself who led Jesus to the cross. Because the cross was ultimately a matter between the Father and the Son. The cross was ultimately a matter between God the Father and God the Son who had become a human being. The cross was where Jesus became sin laden. When God laid upon Jesus all of the sin of humanity. You see it in passages like 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. When Jesus died on that cross, he was wearing, carrying human sin. One of the greatest passages of the Bible is Isaiah 53. The New Testament either quotes Isaiah 53 or alludes to it 42 times. It's about God's faithful servant who suffers under God's wrathful hand. And he suffers because sin has been laid on him. 
He says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see what was happening on the cross? On the cross, God laid upon Jesus the sin, the iniquity of the entire world. God was laying upon Jesus the guilt for the iniquity and the punishment for the iniquity. So Isaiah says in verse 12, he bore, he carried the sins of many. You see, when Jesus died on that cross, he wore sin upon his shoulders. It wasn't just that he was dying under, under the Romans and the Sadducees. No, Jesus was a death under sin. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says something that's so awful, it almost borders on blasphemy. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin. So Jesus who was perfect, Jesus who is the holy God himself, whose eyes are just too pure to look on sin, was actually made sin itself. Jesus became the epitome of sin. In other words, sin was so draped over his shoulders like a cloak that it was all that could be seen of him. The very perfect God who had never sinned was now sin itself. And so that meant that Jesus died under the wrath of God. The perfect God who responds to sin and evil with wrath poured out that wrath on Jesus. Look at the sort of death Jesus, the servant, dies in verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried his, our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before a shearer's is silent, so he did not open his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Do you see the sort of death that Jesus died? He died the, under the wrath and the agony of God himself. In his death, Jesus was stricken by God. He was smitten by him. He was pierced and he was crushed and he was afflicted and he was oppressed all by God. The anger of God himself was poured out on Jesus' head. What else was the cup that Jesus was so fearful of but the cup of God's wrath? Remember the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. What else was the cup but the cup of God's wrath? The cup that in Ezekiel God says is large and deep. It will bring scorn and derision for it holds so much. You'll be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry. You will, be, you will dash it to pieces and tear your breasts. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. You see, God's cup is his anger. It's his scorn and his derision at sin, and it's filled with drunkenness and shame and sorrow, and it ruins and it desolates all who drink it. God's cup is his hatred and punishment of sin. 
And as Jesus lies on the ground before God in the Garden of Gethsemane, that is what he faces. That's why he is horror-struck. It's why he's terrified. You see, human beings may have given Jesus vinegar to drink, but his Father gave him a cup infinitely more terrible. As he hung there on the cross... The Father who had always loved His Son, the Father who had always glorified His Son, now hated His Son, now afflicted His Son with scorn and derision. And Jesus drank that cup to its dregs. Why else did the Son disappear? In Luke 23, we're told, and also in Mark, that darkness came over the land for three hours while Jesus hung there dying on the cross. Because this was the day of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is God's judgment day, which Isaiah said would be a cruel day, filled with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven in their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I'll put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. And this is what happened to Jesus when he died. It was the cruel day when the loving father poured out his wrath, his fierce anger onto his beloved son when Jesus was punished for all of the world's evil. At the birth of the Son of God, there was brightness at midnight. At his death, there was darkness at noon. Some people have even said that Jesus descended into hell. Some English translations of the Apostle Creed have it that Jesus went to hell. It's not strictly true. What the Apostles' Creed actually says is that he descended to the dead, the place of the dead. But if hell is the place of God's wrath, then yes, Jesus did. Not in the three days after his death, but right there on the cross. That afternoon, as Jesus hung there, expiring and breathing his last... He was in hell as the wrath of God rained down upon his child. And not just God's wrath, but also his curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written that, any, that written, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. You see, in Deuteronomy 21 Anyone who's crucified or impaled or hung, lynched on a tree, that person has died under God's curse. They've died because God has chosen to curse them. And Jesus was cursed by God on the cross. At his baptism, Jesus was blessed by God. He was approved by God. God said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Jesus was blessed at his baptism, but at his crucifixion, God cursed him. He was hung upon a cross for all the world to see that this man was hated. This man was anathema. This man was cursed by the living, holy God himself. 
But the most heartbreaking image of all has to be Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Come with me to Matthew 27, 46. Matthew 27, verse 46. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of all the things to be on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by his father. This is the son who'd been with his father since before the creation of the world. This is the son who had created the world with his father. This is the son who was bound to his father with divine love in the Holy Spirit. The son who had never known anything but the pleasure of the father. And now he was forsaken by his father. He was abandoned He was discarded and disowned. Jesus died an orphan on the cross. And of course, he's quoting Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 actually plums the depths of Jesus' suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, and I'm not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breath. Breast from birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, many strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Those aren't David's words in the end. They're Jesus' words. Uttered a thousand years before his birth by an ancestor. So that we can see the anguish of Jesus on the day of his death. The words of an abandoned, forsaken son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry out by day, 
and you do not answer. It's funny, some people think that Jesus wasn't really forsaken by his Father on the cross because Psalm 22 ends with praising and joy. The author says that God hasn't actually hidden his face, but the words are there, they can't be ignored. (coughs) My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' Father turned from him, disowned him, rejected him. On the cross, Jesus was discarded by God himself as so much junk. Worse than that, accursed filth. God is too pure to look on sin. He hates sin and sinners. And Jesus has now been made sin. Jesus is cursed and crushed and smitten and punished and abandoned and forsaken to die Utterly, utterly alone in the universe. No one has ever been alone like Jesus was alone in that moment. Imagine Jesus' anguish on that day. Imagine his torment and sorrow. Knowing that the Father who from eternity had loved him now turned his face away and poured a cup of wrath down his throat. Imagine Jesus' torment. Imagine the cries and the taunts from the people below. Those cries would have been nothing. It's just the barking of dogs. The real horror came from above. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus died completely alone. After Judas had betrayed him, after the crowds had turned on him, after his disciples and Peter had run away, the cruelest blow of all was that on the cross, God walked away from his son. Romans 8 verse 32 even uses the word betray. The same word for what Judas did. The same word for what Israel did. God gave up, betrayed his own son. Some people have talked about the Trinity itself being split on the cross. It's hard to know if that's the right word. I I don't think that it is. But what is true is this. On that cross, the son called out to his father. And at that moment, the father would not listen. What happened to Jesus on that cross? He was conspired against. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was ridiculed by men. Satan entered into one of his closest friends so that he betrayed him. But worst of all, God smote him and struck him and cursed him and ultimately abandoned him. It's awful. It's horrific. 
It's the single worst thing that has ever been done. And yet, do you know the most amazing thing of all? Jesus chose it. Knowing all of this in advance, Jesus chose the God-forsaken cross. It wasn't just human choice. It wasn't just the disciples. It wasn't just Judas or Pilate or the Jews. It wasn't even that the Father, God the Father, did this to Jesus. No, Jesus chose this for himself. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. You see, Jesus chooses this. In fact, in Ephesians 5 verse 2, Paul uses the same betray word about Jesus that he used for Judas. If it's possible, Jesus betrayed himself. Jesus gave himself up to that cross. See, the one thing we must never believe is that Jesus was a passive victim. Yes, he said nothing. Yes, he did nothing. But never believe that Jesus was some docile prey on the cross. Now, as we examine what happened on the cross, the last big truth that we have to grapple with tonight is the triune cross. That Jesus and his Father together were the architects of the cross. The cross wasn't something that God did to Jesus. It was something they did together. Notice Jesus' language in John John 10. Jesus lays down his life. No one takes it from him. But the thing is, when he laid down his life, Jesus did this at the command of his Father. That is, the cross is the ultimate example of the Trinity in action. Jesus The Father and the Holy Spirit are all one God. That means they always do everything together as one God. Everything that Jesus did throughout his life was done with his Father and his Holy Spirit. Jesus and his Father work together. So John actually weaves three great themes around Jesus as he comes into the world. One, Jesus was sent into the world by God. Two, Jesus came to do his Father's work. And three, Jesus came to do his Father's will. And those three ideas, sent, work and will, just get woven together all the way through John. So John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. John 6, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. Or John 7, he who speaks on his own does so to gain glory for himself, but he who works for the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. John 8, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. John 9, as long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. You see, Jesus and his Father always work together. The Father sends Jesus into the world. Jesus does God's work and he does God's will. And that's the great truth at the heart of the cross. That God and Jesus were working together. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. This command I receive from my Father. 
You see, the Father and the Son were working together on that day. And actually, the same is true of the Holy Spirit. All throughout his life, everything Jesus did was always in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was baptized by the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He preached in the power of the Spirit. He had joy in the Spirit. Jesus' entire life was spent in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, and so was his death. You don't actually hear much about the Holy Spirit when it comes to the cross, do you? It's hard to think of a single verse where the Holy Spirit is involved with the cross. But the author of Hebrews says that Jesus offered himself to God through the eternal spirit. The Holy Spirit was there on that day too. The Holy Spirit was in Jesus, urging him, comforting him, strengthening him so that Jesus could offer himself up to God. You see, there was one God at work on the cross. The Father sending His Son, the Son doing His Father's will in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the triune cross. And it's crucial that we realize this. The cross is not something that God did to Jesus. The cross is something they did together. It's crucial that we realize this because one of the great controversies, one of the two great controversies in Christianity at the moment is the cross and what happened on it. See, one of the things you need to realize is the cross is always a battleground. The cross is always something that Christians have to fight for. Most Christians assume that the cross is something that we never really have to argue about because it's just so basic and fundamental. Surely no one would be arguing about the cross anymore. Nowadays, we argue about things like homosexuality and marriage and those kinds of things. But don't you believe it? For 2,000 years, the cross has always been under attack. There'll always be some new, fashionable way to deny Jesus' work on the cross. And for the rest of your life, you have to expect to fight for it. And one of the big two ways at the moment uh, that is to minimize the cross is to say that Jesus didn't suffer his father's wrath. Jesus didn't suffer his father's wrath because that would mean that God is unjust. That would mean that the father is a brute. That would make the cross some form of cosmic child abuse. So people are saying things like, when the cross is understood in a punitive sense, a punishment sense, Christ becomes the whipping boy who appeases the wrath of God. And how have we come to believe that at the cross, the God of love suddenly decides to vent his anger and wrath on his own son? The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he hasn't even committed. When people say things like that, they say they haven't understood the Trinity. The father did punish his son for an offense that he hadn't committed. But the cross is not cosmic child abuse. No, the cross was Jesus' choice. No one took Jesus' life. He laid it down in obedience to his father in the power of the Holy Spirit. The cross was the deliberate, calculated horrific work of the triune God and when you know that when you know that Jesus chose every single moment of that night and day when you know that Jesus embraced every single moment of that night and day then you learn to love him all the more we praise him and adore him and exalt him all the more because he did all of that for us. He was betrayed for us. 
He was crucified for us. He was smitten and struck and hated. He was sin-laden and accursed and ultimately forsaken for us because He loved you that much. When you understand the depths of the cross, you also understand just how much Jesus loves you. And yet over the next two nights, we're going to discover something extraordinary. We're going to discover that as much as Jesus loves you, and as much as God loves you, Jesus loves himself even more. And God loves himself even more. Because what we're going to discover over the next two nights is that the cross was for God's sake first. And it was for Jesus' sake. But let's pray. Our almighty heavenly Father, we cannot begin to comprehend the agony of the cross. We cannot begin to comprehend what it cost you to pour out your wrath upon your innocent, perfect and beloved Son. We cannot begin to comprehend what it meant for him to be abandoned and forsaken by you. We thank you for your word that takes us into that moment as horrific and heart-rending as it is. We thank you that your word shows it to us. But Father, to forsake your son, what must that have cost? For the Son to be hated and forsaken by his Father, what must that have cost? And that you did that for us. You did it because you love us who have never loved you, who have never adored you and never worshipped you. For us who are so undeserving, so deserving of your wrath. Father, we praise you. We praise you that this was your plan with the Son. That every moment was planned before eternity. That every blow that was struck upon Jesus was planned before eternity. And that in that moment of his death, you fulfilled your great plan before eternity. And Father, we pray that over the rest of this week that we might begin to plumb the depths of this most extraordinary, horrific, and yet wonderful thing. That Jesus died in our place for our salvation because you love us. And we also pray that you'll show us how the cross was for your sake. The cross was ultimately for your glory and your honour, and your power. And we pray that you'll show us how on the cross, Jesus himself, even as he suffered your wrath, even as he was forsaken, we pray that you'll show us the way he was glorified, adored and worshipped in splendour. 
We pray that you'll show us the very bigness of the cross these next two nights. And we pray it for your sake, for our Lord Jesus' sake. Amen.